Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced for WGXC by New Adventures in Sound Art. Right now, the textures and drones you're hearing from this broadcast come from a Canadian Coast Guard icebreaker called the Pierre Redesson. This forms the soundtrack of a feature-length film called Pierre Redesson, Fjord and Gulf. It was made in 2017 by Ben Donahue, who will be my guest today. The film has recently been adapted for a digital presentation and it's available online at asa.ca at your convenience, but only until December 20th. The film presents the daily activity and environment of the ship's work on the Saguenay Fjord and the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Quebec, providing a window into a portion of the invisible labor that underpins the Canadian economy. The film also brings the deep winter landscapes of coastal Quebec into dialogue with intensive industrial activity of ore shipments from the mines of the Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean region. Shot in super 16mm with only a two-person crew of director-cinematographer Ben Donahue and location sound recordist Noé Rodriguez, the film embraces context, giving duration and breadth to the images and sounds of the journey. Through a slow observational form, this film brings the viewer onto the ship and into the journey. The film intentionally avoids narration and can be thought of as a landscape painting unfolding in time. Here's my discussion with Ben Donahue about the making of this film, Pierre Redesson, Fjord and Gulf, 
and it's tracing its development since its release in 2016. It's an observational study of the Canadian state's presence at all elements of resource extraction and economy within the landscape across Canada, and often some in ways that are unseen. So ships moving goods from mines all year round are escorted by icebreakers through the ice and wanting people to sit with it, to just watch and experience the thing and not wanting to provide anything extra, no explanations. There's no subtitles. So people will be speaking, talking about whether it's about the ship or whether about, is the camera running? Are they filming? What's going on? Um, people will be speaking in French. There's no subtitles. It's structured as something for people to relax into and try and listen and look deeply and see new detail. And so why is it that you approached it that way as opposed to making a more um, straight-up political documentary about resource extraction in, in uh, northern Canada? I find I'm not so interested in the conventional documentary as form. I think that can be an important educational tool, but as artworks, they aren't interesting to me. And wanting to place viewers in situations that might be difficult, might be uncomfortable, but might also be uncomfortable for me, might be read in a lot of different ways. And not wanting to overly determine this work. So in this instance, throughout the filming process, throughout the post process, I often feel incredibly uncomfortable at the number of Canadian flags everywhere. And my own critiques of Canadian nationalism, um, patriotism in general, the Canadian state are have to take a back seat in this work to what there was. And I don't think it would be useful for me to be adding a running commentary. And I find it very interesting that this work could be read in wildly different ways by people of different politics, with different knowledge, with different experiences. And I don't want to overdetermine that. Where in other works, it might be something that I'll want, I do want to engage with, not in this one. Um, which is perhaps a failed experiment. Well, I mean, I was thinking, like, you did the work on adapting it for online viewing, yeah. which meant that you, I suppose, worked on it some years or time after you had uh, did the filming and and uh, the original cut of the film. Um, what was it like coming back to it? Was your, was your uh, interpretation of the events 
that you documented different? Not so much different. Um, there's still, there's thoughts of, oh, I'd, had I been able to do this, or if I could do it again, I'd want to approach it in these ways. But of course, that's colored with this experience of having made it already um, and having been able to think about it over a few years. One thing that really struck me working again, doing working on a new color correction that was done in Toronto with Alter Ego Post, um, James Graham, a colorist there, was just the richness of the material. And then Joshua Benjamin Hemming, who did the original sound edit and worked with that material originally, he went through and did a new mix um, because we'd focused on that 5-1 mix for cinema. And he went through and redid the mix for stereo. And working with both of them, doing those close listening and watching many times in the last few months, regardless of any questions I have or thoughts of I could have done it differently, there's something incredibly strong about the material and beautiful. Like there's shots that I don't get, even after these hundreds of times, I don't get tired of watching and listening to. Yeah, and I think with it not having a narrative, um, sometimes a, a narrative kind of explains away the movie and then once you've got the story, that it seems to stop there. Um, I mean, I enjoy watching movies over and over, but because um, I have a bad memory, so I forget them. But but uh, um, but there is that element of knowing where it's going. But I guess if I re if I rewatch your film, I yes, I know where it's going, but I feel that I get to experience it differently each time. Yeah. Um, is that is that what you saw? What you inspired to approaching landscape film when you saw, um, uh, when you first got that kind of uh, inspiration from uh, James Benning? It's part of it. It's partly the the meditative aspect, the coming to looking and listening, and forcing attention. And the narrative often does away with that. So this film does, in a lot of ways, have certain conventional narrative gestures hidden in it, and its structure just unfolded that way in from some possible readings. But it's not given easily. You need to sit with it. You need to be perhaps sit in discomfort or in relaxation through duration instead of having the narrative to propel you along, to quiet your own thoughts. Um, for a while, and maybe I'll return to it, but I made silent films for a period, and I was always very interested in that collective experience of watching a silent film in a theater with other people, where you hear, and I, I hate it when it's me, but you hear the person's stomach rumbling, or someone two rows down keeps passing gas throughout the screening, whatever it is. Um, but you feel your own body, you become hyper aware and you're hyper aware of everyone around you and you gradually also settle into the image itself and settle into comfort and lose that hyper awareness that you begin with. 
and there's part of this that is about bringing people to that experience. thing that struck me is we're presenting it as a sound art organization. It's a feature film. Uh, you and Noe Rodriguez are on this icebreaker ship uh, in the dead of winter in somewhere in Quebec, and you're capturing the sounds of this uh, machines and, and filming it as, as is to put the viewer on the experience of being on the ship. So what was going through your minds when you got on the ship and when you were in that environment and where did where did your thought process begin? I mean, there was preparation and everything to get you there, but once you got there, where, where, was, where was your mindset in terms of capturing this, this environment? It shifted a lot. Um, this was a very long project, just getting to the point of shooting it took from the initial beginning of the idea took, I guess, almost seven years till we had permissions, the funding in place, all the ideas. It had originally been conceived as a gallery work for three screens and immersive sound. And using the gallery, I was planning on looking at the ship in the landscape and really thinking about the tradition of landscape film, of landscape painting, and working with that form in the gallery to connect it to invisible labor supporting extractive industries. And especially in at a point where constantly the discussions of climate change and the climate crisis, the changes in sea ice, all these things were front of mind but wanting the image and the recording to be just of the place, to not be using the image and the sound to give anything other than what we saw. So avoiding voiceover, avoiding interviews. There was sort of internal debates that I had around whether to do more, but that was really the initial thing. And we had no idea what this experience was going to be up until about a week before. We didn't know where we would be because there was very thin ice in the winter of 2016. So we ended up in Chicoutimi, Quebec, um, actually La Baie, which is part of in up the Chicoutimi, the fjord and the Saguenay fjord. And that was where I'd initially conceived of the idea and thought about shooting, but we knew that in the process we didn't know where we would end up. It was depending where the ice was, where ships needed escorts, 
were where the icebreakers would be. So getting on, we ended up, it was dark in the evening, rolling up to this industrial terminal where that you see a number of times in the film where mining, um, it's mainly bauxite from the mines there and aluminum are loaded and it was a bit disconcerting. We only had a little bit of time. There was complex regulations. It was incredibly cold and hauling all this gear onto a ship and trying to figure out, okay, what are we doing? We really, we have no idea how this is gonna go. Um, and just trying to figure it out. It was, we knew we had originally a maximum of five days that we were allowed to be there. That changed a bit due to some things that happened throughout the process. But that beginning point of trying to think of how do we, how do we set the scene? And so being really prepared for what we thought was any eventuality, which proved to be not the case. Um, but the camera being well set up in that department, ready for the cold, um, a whole series of microphones, so a mid-side mid setup, as well as a couple of Omnis, some contact mics, um, just trying to have as much as possible, knowing that the gallery environment is so spatial and conceiving it as three screens that viewers would be within, knowing that building that sound and that noise, which we weren't really prepared for how all-consuming that was, but we knew you know, that you can imagine a giant piece of metal grinding through meters thick, a meter thick ice. It's gonna be loud, but the experience of it is something else. A lot of times in the film, the sound I was hearing was like a hum or, or like a uh, I mean, that was also a very pervasive element. Um, was that as, when you were there, was that on the icebreaker ship, was that as pervasive as the crushing through the ice? It would depend because we weren't always moving. Um, and the ship has different sounds depending if it's still or if it's moving through the ice, there's motors, electrical systems, all these different devices. And the ship is also tiered. So when you're in the, where the highest ranks on the ship sleep, it's far above the waterline. And as it goes down and the lower ranks are on the lower berths near the waterline where that sound of the engines, the sound of crushing through the ice are. So there is this hierarchy of proximity to noise. Yes, I, I, uh, that, like, like in society. <laughs> yeah. what, what were some of the complications that took seven years to get yourself to be there? What were, what were some of the roadblocks that, that you had to overcome? Well, it had first been conceived of in the winter of 2009. And I'd been visiting Shikurumi. I had an exhibition at Espace Virtuel, an artist-run center there, now Center Bang. And it was a show of a 16 millimeter installation as well as work by 16 and video work by Christina Battle and Kelly Egan and myself. 
And I was also teaching a workshop on 16 mil while I was there. And during that visit, uh, the curator of the gallery took me to La Baie, which is the small town south of Chicoutimi, still in what's now the metropolitan or the municipality of Saguenay. And that's where that terminal, the mining terminal is, where the ships are loaded. And we were out walking on the ice, which there's villages and of um, ice fishing huts all down the fjord. And it was then that a convoy of ships came in behind an icebreaker and lit up against the mountain. And I was thinking, oh, this would make an incredible work just in my interests around landscape film, around the extractive industries and the human intervention into landscape. From there, I was working at an organization called LIFT as the executive director, so that's Liaison of Independent Filmmakers in Toronto. And while I was in Chicoutimi for that show, that was just as we were opening the new building that we'd built on DuPont Street in Toronto. And that <laughs> consumed the next few years of my life. So finally, when that quieted down, about three years later, I decided it was time for me to move on and go back to trying to focus on making work and take some part-time jobs instead of a far more than full-time. At that point, I started putting together that proposal. And in my time at Lyft, my practice had really shifted. Before that, I'd lived in Vancouver and was really constrained on resources. So a lot of my films were small 16 millimeter and Super 8 films that would cost $30, $50 a film, and that was the maximum budget. But I'd always been really drawn to these large-scale works, and that started to feel possible. So as I put that together, it took about a year for the funding to be secured for the gallery work. But unfortunately, the federal government at the time, which oversees the DFO, had a policy of not allowing journalists to talk to any government scientists and so and was very supportive of the oil industry was full of climate deniers and their thought of having a strange experimental this is the artist harper, Har this is the harper government yeah the, the uh, harper conservative the government, government um mm -hmm. we just kept getting the runaround so we talked to dfo everyone was very friendly but for some reason, we never got the permissions through. And it was two years of applying. Then I put in a series of additional checks in the fall of 2015. There happened to be an election, and the conservative government was defeated. A liberal government was elected, and suddenly all the permissions were granted. I don't know if there was a direct cause and effect <laughs> relationship, but it was remarkable that it happened within a, a week. Um, so then we started getting ready to go. And Noe at that point was teaching at SFU. And so we plotted reading week as the time. So we would focus around that week and take two weeks for the trip to drive up there and we knew we were only allowed five days, and they also couldn't tell us when it was. It was, we'll tell you the place to go. It will be somewhere in Eastern Canada. Go there, wait, a ship will come and get you, 
and then it will drop you off somewhere. <laughs> it worked out a lot simpler than that, but that was because often they don't have a fixed schedule or can't predict a lot of those things, so we were just having to be flexible and work around whatever happened. Mm-hmm. And when you were on the ship, uh, I mean, there's there's arts where you film various members of the crew going about their activities and even dining in the in the in the uh, uh, cafeteria they have on the ship, um, which was kind of a very intimate kind of moment watching someone eat, um, uh, you know, uh, which is not something I expected. Um, what? How was the crew? in terms of uh, their, um, uh, did they welcome your presence or were, were, were was it a, a negotiation to get them on, ca- on, on, uh, on camera? Everyone was really welcoming. Some people were less interested in being on camera. We were also confusing. We were shooting analog film. Um, recording weird things like sticking contact mics on stuff and just generally being acting like artists and they were expecting a very conventional us coming up sticking a mic in their face and interviewing them because of the work I'd originally conceived there wasn't any characters or thought of interviews on camera so we had a lot of long conversations with people but didn't record any of those and so that changed the dynamic And I think people were a lot more comfortable with us because we weren't, we were just observing. And I think had there been more time, it would have changed how we went about things. But everyone was great. And the the one dining room you see there, that's one of two. There's an officer's dining room, the floor above, and that's the crew dining room. But the food was exceptional. So, of course, being on a ship for long periods of time, it's important. But there was two cooks. Um, you see them in the film. And in one part, you do see a series of swirl. They look like pastries of some kind. Those were actually, they were making vanilla and chocolate cookie bowls for homemade ice cream that they'd made. So the the food was taken very seriously. Wow. <laughs> I wanted to also get back to y- the work you were doing on the film. So you were, you were, um, you know, using things like contact mics and things like that. Um, where was the sound aspect of your conception and, and how that evolved once Noe was involved? Noe brought a lot of, he brought the contact mics and various other stuff. And really, we talked through a lot of what we wanted to see. Uh, I do, I also have a background in more experimental audio and especially the West Coast noise scene. Um, So thinking through things like contact mics is really natural. Uh, But Noe had been specifically working around location sound recording and wilderness sound recording for a couple years at that point so had become really interested in recording using hydrophones and contact microphones and building spatial and environmental soundscapes. 
So it was a perfect fit. We'd worked together at Lyft and had spent a lot of time talking about ideas. And it just, it worked out really well, far better than I expected. Listening to sounds from the film Pierre Redesson, Fjord and Golf, made by Ben Donahue. Ben is our guest today on Making Waves, and I'm your host, Darren Copeland. Making Waves is produced by New Adventures and Sound Art, and is heard the second Saturday of every month on WGXC. It was interesting you mentioned uh, being involved in the Vancouver noise scene. And um, because it, it's like a noise piece, if you just listen to the soundtrack of, you know, kind of industrial, uh, kind of noise drone music, and is that how you saw? Is that how you experience the sounds from the ship? That as a as a kind of experimental music. Definitely, uh, <laughs> I could very easily see sourcing it and running it through a bunch of distortion pedals and. Uh, it's an easy power electronics album, uh, but 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 you left it, it as is. I left it as is. Was was really interested in just leaving the sound unaffected, and because it was so rich, there wasn't a need to manipulate it. There wasn't a need to move beyond it, and especially with the ideas I'd been working in around both picture and sound around duration and the importance of bringing an audience into duration. This effect where you listen or watch something and your mind wanders, it might drift a bit, but gradually over time you begin to settle into the work and you go deeper into those textures, deeper into the piece and see things that you wouldn't see otherwise or hear things you wouldn't see otherwise. And the sound is that type of durational component where the more time you spend with it, the more you can hear and pick up different parts of it. And the film is about just over an hour. Um, there's kind of similar kind of things with this slow TV and things like that, where there, you know, there's the following the train through the uh, Norwegian fjords for 
a whole weekend or something like that. Um, was there any uh, interest in pushing that time variable, or was it a, a limit of technology and the cost of uh, film uh, that limited you to the one-hour duration? Yeah, it ended up being 80 minutes in the end, and I shot a total of three hours. So used to over half of the material that was shot. With film, there's, of course, cost and the length of a roll. So I was shooting 400-foot rolls, which are 11 minutes. And it presents a really different set of constraints and a different set of compositional requirements than working with video. One of the elements for me that's so important to it is a certain flow of composition where that limitless recording of video I lose and the filter of film forces me to react creatively to that constraint uh, and plan and really consider and deeply consider and care about and focus on each element that I'm shooting where I don't have that otherwise. It, it's also just been the center of my practice. So I never considered doing a video work. One of the big influences on this type or this portion of my film practice would be James Benning and specifically some of his landscape, 16 millimeter landscape films. Um, I remember, especially the first time I saw his film, 13 Lakes, it was a revelatory experience for me on just what cinema could be entirely composed of 13 10 minute long takes without camera movement, going to these 13 lakes across the United States, placing the first two feet of the tripod in the water and filming that 11 minute roll, cutting a bit off the head and tail and doing that 13 times. Of course, there's more takes, there's more the audio might not be perfectly synchronous, there's different things going on there, but that experience of watching those collectively in the cinema was really transformative and shaping my thinking about how, how you can also be changing your audience's way of seeing and way of experiencing through duration. So in a sense, it's, it's, with this 11 minute um, limitation for the shot, um, you're, it's like a sequence of portraits that you're connecting together, I guess, except that the, within the portraits, there's time unfolding, but, um, but, they're, but it seems like they're, that it's, it's a chance to gaze at something for ex, that's relatively static for a period of time and then switch. And then in the film, you did very hard cuts. Uh, there were no uh, segues as such. Um, so is that how, so in a way, the piece is, in a sense, a way to think of it is, is a sequence of, of still life scenes? Potentially. It's, there's a lot of different ways you can experience it. So it's discrete moments of time. It's always moving but there's very few moments where the camera actually moves. There's just a couple shots where either there's a zoom or a camera pan. Part of that was due to the cold and the challenge of 
uh, some of the shooting conditions, but also was a compositional decision for just having people sit and gaze at a work. Because it was only doing the shooting process that I began to feel a film emerge. And feeling that pacing in the shooting, feeling that pacing with the camera, where I could imagine something in the cinema. And knew, probably by the third or fourth day, that I don't think this is going to be a work for gallery, but I think this will be a work for a cinema, for a group of people to sit in darkness and experience together. I see. Yeah, because I guess if you were thinking of it as a three-screen uh, three projection in a gallery, that's a different way of treating time yeah. and gives you different options than it would be for a singular projection uh, to a, for a fixed time frame. Exactly. And the gallery as well, the referent is always painting or photography. So the referent, even if it's a video and the object is moving, the core thing you're speaking to is so often paintings and photography as opposed to cinema. Right, right. And so, so you wanted to frame it as cinema instead of as a moving painting. It was as the process was going. Sometimes as I'm working with the camera, you feel the rhythm of the film starting to emerge from the shooting process. This was with a larger camera with 400 foot magazines, so 11 minutes. But often I film with a Bolex camera where the spring is only wound for 28 seconds. So you fully wind it. You can shoot for around 28 seconds at 24 frames a second, and then you're done, and you have to stop, rewind the camera. And often that shooting experience is where I find the breadth of the film, the way it paces, the way it's structured. And it often changes what I thought it was going to be at the beginning. Right, right, because it's, it's there happening, and you're saying, oh, this is what's going to be in the production as opposed to what you anticipated happening. And just being um, ready to did, change. So did you approach the sound within these 11-minute uh, limitations, or was the sound recorded on a separate sources where that, that didn't matter? So it's all recorded non, on a separate recorder, and we would sometimes be recording synchronous so you know it's off frame but no way it'll clap or i'll wave a card in front of the lens and the shot will begin and we'll have some moment to mark that and then sync it up later but there was a lot of recording that was also done with no way out recording different parts of the ship and me working on something else. And that was partly due to structural constraints. So the camera, because of the changes in temperature, it might have been minus 30 outside or lower a lot of the days. And so I'd be going outside to shoot at the end of the day and doing my exterior work, knowing that the camera then had to sit undisturbed for the entire night in a case to come to room temperature before I could safely handle it to prevent condensation. 
So then I'd be doing interiors in the morning. And so sometimes we would be working together and sometimes we'd have to break off and Noe's equipment was a lot more flexible to be, he'd be able to go and record the sound of something while I was waiting for the camera. We also had an issue. There was one shot that people see shot from above where the front of the ship is breaking through fairly thick ice um, and I'm perched hanging over the ledge on top of the ship in the wind. After that shot, a fuse had blown. We looked through the camera kit, there was no spare fuse, so I had to get off the ship the next day, drive to Montreal. Fortunately, the wonderful folks at Main Film, their technician brought the camera body home for me to pick up from his house that night, and I drove back to Saguenay to get back on the icebreaker the next day. So doing that whole time that I'm driving 20, <laughs> 22 hours um, to pick up a replacement camera, Noe's there recording and just working right through it. Um, and for most of the equipment, the cold, the sound equipment, the cold did well. Like We had cables built for most of the XLRs that could withstand the temperatures. The only issue was a cable on a contact microphone snapped in the cold um, one day when it was around minus 40. He went to uncoil it and the cable just, that was it. For people that don't know where Shikudumi is, how far north, like, and where, what, and, and this is a, another river that goes north from the St. Lawrence, is that, I mean, just to put us where we are in Canada. Yeah, so the furthest east, the last scene of the film, and the few shots before that are shot out in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. That's a town called Metan on the south shore of the St. Lawrence that you see in the final moment and the shots before are on the way there. But all the rest of the footage is a couple hundred kilometers inland from the sea down the St. Lawrence River before you get to Quebec City, maybe 100, 150 kilometers east of Quebec City, there's a river that runs north, the Saguenay, um, up into the Lac Saint-Jean region of Quebec. And that's in the area we're shooting up until around Chicoutimi, it's a large fjord where bulk carriers can go up the river. And this is a place that, um, I mean, it's, it, it was like minus 30. Is that because of being out on the water? Like if you were in the towns, it'd be minus 20? Or was there any sort of wind chill element there? Or was it, that, was it, was it just that cold? It was cold. <laughs> that was yeah. without the wind chill. It's really cold. Um, wow. we, some days were beautiful and not bad at all to be out. There were some days where it was very challenging. Fortunately, the, the camera was able to handle it. All the equipment was selected specifically for shooting in those conditions. And that's one thing um, I'd previously, when I'd been there in 2009 and teaching a workshop, one thing we encountered using the Bolexes was the students would be going outside and shooting some things you'd get a few minutes of camera work in and then the camera would seize up from the metal expanding from the cold. 
Mm. And so we had to talk to a local clothing designer who built us fleece cozies for the cameras that we could put the little hot packs you put in your mitts in winter, put those in the camera with these fleece cozies to keep them warm. So I, I knew what I was in for. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Do you find that the working on it now um, in 2031, not just the pandemic, but the, the pervasive nature of social media and how that's become a, a main driver of culture um, versus your original uh, education and, and development through, through cinema, um, that the, that the relationship of this film to the audience is different now than it would have been when you started? I think so. I'm quite interested to think of how people will experience it. Sending a work out online is not something that I do. I've always made work for a context of being with people of being present to share work, to speak about it, to sit with it together. And the online, this will be a new experiment for me. And seeing how people engage with it in that different context, where someone is alone or with friends or family watching this thing, it's a very different experience. I don't know what kind of life it'll have online. I'm curious. It'll be interesting to see. I'm personally not on social media, so I miss that part of the human, the current human experience. <laughs> and I, I don't know how this work would fare in that context. Well, I, th I think it's a, a restful antidote to the chaos of social media. <laughs> Glad I can be of help.
That was Ben Donahue in conversation with me, Darren Copeland, on Making Waves. Ben Donahue's film Pierre Redesson, Fjord and Gulf can be viewed until December 20th. Later this evening on December 11th, Ben will be giving an artist talk that will go into more detail about adapting this 16mm film to online viewing. You can find information about both uh, the screening and the artist talk at nasa.ca. Making Waves will return in the new year, approximately one month from now. You can also listen online to past episodes of Making Waves on the Wayfarm Archive and on most podcast providers.